Welcome back to Think, Discuss, Act, the show that gets you thinking deeply about the great ideas and more. I'm Zach Pritz, along with Dr. Terry Roberts and Dr. Jeremy Spielman. For episode two, we will be talking about the idea of happiness. The format of the show follows our title. We think aloud about a great idea, discuss one of three texts that center on that idea, and end the episode with an offer to act on the idea discussed. If you're joining us for the first time, we have a detailed background of who we are at the beginning of episode one. I also want to mention our Bonus Bites episodes, which are tailored to our listeners who want to know more about using the principles of paideia in discussion, also known as seminar, in the classroom or with project-based learning. These Bites episodes take the most recently discussed idea and extend it within a paideia framework. If you have enjoyed the work of Think, Discuss, Act podcast, please subscribe to stay in the conversation. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Right, guys. So we're here for another podcast, Think, Discuss, Act. And our topic is happiness. So we can start with sort of a launch activity to introduce this idea. And then we will bounce around on a definition of happiness. So the, uh, the launch activity is from Herodotus, the history of Herodotus, book one, which is regarded by many as the first historical text of Western civilization. And there's a question posed about happiness from Croesus, the king to the wise traveler, Solon. Whom of all the men that thou hast seen, thou deemest the most happy? There have been many versions of responses attributed to Salon. However, we will discuss the ideas connected to this statement by him. He says, I see that thou art wonderfully rich and art the Lord of many nations. But with respect to that whereon thou question, questionest me, I have no answer to give until I hear that thou hast closed thy life happily. So I guess we'll, we'll begin this discussion today with how each of us personally define happiness. Um, So Jeremy, Terry, whichever one of you has figured happiness out, maybe you can start. Terry, I bow to you. It's interesting. I think there might be at least two different kinds of happiness. One is the sort of innocent happiness that we associate with childhood. Of course, all children are not so fortunate as to experience a happy childhood, but there's something about a childlike wonder and innocence in life that we would be hard-pressed to deny is happy. And in fact, the text I chose that we'll read in a little while, Fern Hill by Dylan Thomas, is about, you know, that blissful, almost Edenic childhood that he had. And that's something I identify with. I had a childhood much like that myself. But I also think there's a second kind of happiness that we might call experienced happiness. And for for two reasons. One is that one is old enough, no longer a child, one is an adult, perhaps of some years experience, long enough to have experienced sadness, maybe even despair. And if that's the case, then 
one, when one does experience happiness by contrast, you're aware of it. You're conscious of it. You, you appreciate it in a way that you probably didn't appreciate it when you were a child for the simple reason that you realize that it's not uh, permanent. It's not um, indestructible. And, and so I think each happiness, innocent happiness and experienced happiness have their own flavor and their own value. Um, and I think this resonates with all three of the seminar texts that we chose, you know, that there is in happiness always a hint or a drop or a, or a speck of, um, if not misery, at the very least, knowledge, um, the knowledge of good and evil. And, and so I'm going to vote for two kinds of happiness. Well, Terry, I'll, I'll build off that. Um, you know, as, as I heard you talking about the two kinds, it actually made me think of uh, William James' ideas around the divided self and that notion that, uh, you know, if you have a harmonious split of those selves, then, then you may be closer to that notion of experienced happiness. But if, you, if it's discordant, uh, then maybe there's a part of you that's happy uh, momentarily. Uh, but then it dissolves when your ice cream drops to the floor or that thing that was, was really probably more a moment of joy has been maybe mismarked as happiness. And so as, as we think sort of about my personal working definition of happiness, which I think changes and evolves with experience and, and emotion uh, I, I, I land sort of on that uh, Greek idea of eudaimonia, uh, or the good life, that sort of sense of um, having worked towards something to feel proud of uh, right at the end. Uh, so much like Solon sort of says, uh, we'll bring out the scales uh, upon our, our deaths and see, you know, did I live a truly happy life? And and maybe it's a combination of of that experienced happiness and that that wonderment or innocence that comes with with bliss or joy or something that's experienced for the first time. Uh, Zach, how about you? Yeah, well, I I definitely was in the same the same vein as both of you guys, and I I think that the the Greek idea is initially what I went to, which I think from our modern perspective might not hold up quite as well. I think that's why having the two, the two options of the childhood innocence and it's experienced happiness. It kind of seems like the, the experienced happiness is something that many small moments over the course of a lifetime sort of culminate into and i think the greek idea is like this culmination of of good things in life that you have to have had in order to say that you are truly happy but that doesn't or i don't think that can that diminishes the often very um real feeling of happiness that we get in the small little things like the ice cream cone went before it falls to the floor or, you know, that sitting down 
for a talk with a friend. So I was definitely on the same, same track with the two sides of happiness. And so I'm interested to see where the, these, this text, whichever one we decide takes us, um, because I think it is a balancing act of sort of unpacking those two sides. I do want to ask before we get started to either of you, do you, do you think that happiness uh, is in the eye of the beholder? Is it perspective or, or can it be something that we have to agree upon? I think it's in the something of the beholder. I, it Meaning that different states of mind and awareness and consciousness, um, something we might you maybe universally call happy is precipitated by different things for different people, I guess, is, is one way of saying it. So I might look at your circumstances and, and think, what? Why aren't you miserable? You know, and you're as happy as you can be. There, There is a whole sort of, I don't know, question about happiness, which ha- and it's sort of reflected in your text, Jeremy. It's that can it be pursued? Can you decide to be happy? Well, your therapist would probably say, yes, that's an important ingredient. But but there is some there are there is a school of thought that says happiness is best enjoyed when you're least self-conscious about it, when you are simply in it. Is that that uh, Bishop Butler's paradox, right? Like the 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 attempt to be happy is what keeps you from ultimately being happy. Yeah. And that's the that innocent aspect that you brought up, Terry, in your definition. That the the very fact that the child is so caught up in wonder or the story or the moment, the the anxieties of all the other things that we know don't don't affect their that momentary happiness. So I think it's has to be subjective to the extent that we experience anything personally from a personal perspective. Um, But I would argue on the other side that there are obviously things that um, maybe one shouldn't find happiness in, or if we did find happiness in it, and that could be a problem to address. So I think that's where, you know, sort of the Aristotelian idea of virtue being a part of the long-term happiness is a is an important piece to the puzzle as well. Yeah, I, I get caught often in that notion of, of can I be uh, definably happy if those around me are not? Um, you know, and so how much uh, is on my shoulders for my my neighbors, my community, my my family, my significant other, whoever it may be. Um, can you make somebody else happy? Right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Wishing it doesn't uh, make it so, right? Mm-hmm. We will enjoy this trip. <laughs> <laughs> well, do, do we want to jump into our discussion? Sure, I can start us off. All righty. So my selection is from uh, Walt Whitman, uh, his Specimen Days which is uh, a sort of like diary entry memoir um, book. 
that is prose for the most part. And so this, uh, the subtitle is October 20th and it reads a clear, crisp day, dry and breezy air full of oxygen out of the sane, silent, beauteous miracles that envelop and fuse me trees, water, grass, sunlight, and early frost. The one I am looking at most today is the sky. It has that delicate, transparent blue peculiar to autumn. And the only clouds are little or larger white ones, giving their still and spiritual motion to the great concave. All through the earlier day, say from 7 to 11, it keeps a pure yet vivid blue. But as noon approaches, the color gets lighter, quite gray for two or three hours, then still paler for a spell till sundown, which last I watch dazzling through the intercesses of a knoll of big trees, Darts of fire and a gorgeous show of light yellow, liver color in red, with a vast silver glaze askant on the water. The transparent shadows, shafts, sparkle in vivid colors beyond all the paintings ever made. I don't know what or how, but it seems to me mostly owing to these skies. Every now and then I think while I have of course seen them every day of my life, I never really saw the skies before. I have had this autumn some wondrously contented hours, may I not say perfectly happy ones. As I've read, Byron just before his death told a friend that he had known but three happy hours during his whole existence. Then there is the old German legend of the king's bell to the same point. While I was out there by the wood and beautiful sunset through the trees, I thought of Byron's and the bell's story and the notion started in me that I was having a happy hour. Though perhaps my best moments I never jot down, when they come, I cannot afford to break the charm by indicting memoranda. I just abandon myself to the mood and let it float on, carrying me in its placid ecstasy. What is happiness anyhow? Is this one of its hours or the like of it? So impalpable, a mere breath, an ev evanescent tinge? I'm not sure. So let me give myself the benefit of the doubt. Hast thou pellucid in thy azure depths, medicine for case like mine, ah, the physical shatter and troubled spirit of me the last three years, and dost thou subtly, mystically now drip it through the air invisibly upon me? That's Walt Whitman. Thank you, Zach. Uh, that, that was a wonderful reading of Whitman, and uh, I felt myself immediately sort of transported there next to him uh, on that journey. Well, I'll go ahead and uh, read my excerpt. As I mentioned before, it's from William James. Um, it says, happiness comes of the capacity to feel deeply, to enjoy simply, to think freely, to risk life, to be needed, which give happiness. Thomas Jefferson, we never enjoy perfect happiness. Our most fortunate successes are mingled with sadness. Some anxieties always perplex the reality of our satisfaction. And that's James. My text is, for, is a poem titled Fern Hill by Dylan Thomas. Fern Hill was the location of a farm that was owned by his aunt and uncle where he spent time as a boy. Um, it's, it's a kind of paying to... to childhood happiness, innocent happiness, you might say. 
Uh, it's fairly long, so in the interest of time, I won't read the whole thing, but in, I'll read three stanzas. Uh, he's describing the farm uh, where he spent his summers as a boy. All the sun long, it was running. It was lovely. The hay feels high as the house. The tunes from the chimneys. It was air and playing, lovely and watery and fire, green as grass. And nightly under the simple stars as I rode to sleep, the owls were bearing the farm away. All the moon long I heard, blessed among stables, the night jars flying with the ricks and the horses flashing into the dark. And then to awake in the farm like a wanderer white with the dew come back, the cock on his shoulder, it was all shining. It was Adam and maiden, the sky gathered again, and the sun grew round that very day. So it must have been after the birth of the simple light in the first spinning place, the spellbound horses walking warm out of the whinnying green stable onto the fields of praise. And honored among foxes and pheasants by the gay house under the new-made clouds, and happy as the heart was long, in the sun born over and over, I ran my heedless days. My wishes raced through the house-high hay. And nothing I cared at my sky blue trades that time allows in all his tuneful turning, so few and such morning songs before the children green and golden follow him out of grace. Thank you, Terry. Zach, do you want to lead us through the selection process for which which ones we want to pick for for this discussion? Um, sure. Well, I mean, I'm I'm I think. It's interesting that uh, Terry's and mine are similar, and I think, in a sense, um, they capture again what we have already discussed in the in the launch activity with the definition of happiness. But I think Jeremy's might might be a good option for sort of moving into really hitting on both sides of the coin that we've already discussed and, it, and, and because it's kind of a dual quote anyways, because we have William James and his mention of Thomas Jefferson. So I'd be interested in discussing Jeremy's selection. Does that sound good, Terry, Jeremy? Yeah, that's good for me. I like, I like this sentence. Yeah, or two it, sentences. It it's tricky, right? I, you know, as I was sort of looking through between episodes, all the different possibilities um, it does seem that that sometimes when you have to to pick one that holds the punch, um, much like you know our Einstein sentence, uh, just how 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 much you can pull out of a statement. So, yeah, I'm I'm happy to to speak about it, um, and, and I think that duplicity is is will be something interesting for us to consider. So that being said, I'll sort of pose this question to. Um, to each of you or, or whoever wants to sort of jump off with the response. But as you sort of think about that notion of, of bittersweet, something that, that is happy, uh, but isn't completely happy. Uh, can you think of something that might invoke pure happiness? Well, I was kind of thinking about this initially when I read your quote, because on one hand, he's saying happiness comes of the capacity to feel you. So he sort of gives this 
in almost like his definition of happiness or at least how happiness is evoked but then on the other hand we he he immediately it feels like he immediately shoots it down uh we never enjoy perfect happiness everything is sort of it has a shadow of the possibility of that happiness going away so maybe the purest happiness is going to be the in the child which is i think partly why both terry and i's seem childlike i mean walt whitman seems childlike in that in looking at the he even as he says i looked at the sky as if i've never looked at it before kind of as a child first sees something um and same with the thomas poem so i would say that um james is saying no obviously and um i think as our knowledge grows maybe that's a part of the trade-off that we behind all of these moments is always that sort of shadow of of uh, losing happiness what do you think terry yeah it's interesting if the distinction that i made a while back between innocent happiness and experienced happiness holds up i mean i this the, i don't know this is a fully developed philosophical system it's just the thought right James seems to be writing about experienced happiness, although you could say the capacity to feel deeply, to enjoy simply, to think freely. Um, up to that point in, sentence, in the first sentence, that that could be an apt description of childhood. Then things get dicey to risk life, to be needed, to be perhaps a caretaker. You know, it, it's almost... There's a way in which I read these two sentences by James as, as though you're watching a child grow into adolescence and then grow into adulthood, and then and it doesn't bode well for adulthood in a way. I mean, however, I think one of the things that gives flavor to experienced happiness, to the happiness that one can experience as an adult, is the knowledge of its lack of having lived long enough to have been unhappy, to have been in despair, to have experienced misery, because it, what that does is, is creates in you the capacity to appreciate happiness. Um, you could make the case that children don't necessarily appreciate it because they've, you know, some children, because they've never known anything else, but an adult probably has known something else. And so the, the, the best spin, Zach, I can put on, James's sentence too is that it's the sadness and the anxiety which remind us how valuable happiness is. Well, and the possibility, what I hear you both saying between that sort of shadow effect and those phases of life is that uh, you have intermittent uh, moments, uh, much like Whitman sort of referenced the the hour of happy. Uh, and and do we only recognize that later, or can we in the moment sort of pause and say, "I feel happy," or do we use a different word, a, a synonym for that? I think you can. I mean, I, based on personal experience, I, I, I actually believe you can. But I also think there's um, it's th there's a mind game that goes with that. It, you feel like you're tempting fate, right? 
if you say, wow, we are so happy, you feel like you got to knock on wood almost immediately. You know? And I do think you can, I catch myself saying we are fortunate, which is, a you know, again, it's a mind game. It's a little vocabulary nuance, but basically I'm saying I probably don't deserve this, but it's nice. You know, it's, it's. Well, and and yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but happiness, the, the English etymology comes from the word luck. Is that mm -hmm. correct? So I think there, there's a, I think as we get older and you know the pain, especially of those, of like, you know, the, the worst pain, then any moment that, that it's like heeding to that moment or holding that moment is what's vital for, for happiness to take place. And so I even see in this conversation, a connection possibly to time from our previous conversation. So I'm kind of cute. I don't want to jump too fast, but it kind of, I kind of want to hear what both of you guys have to say about maybe the way in which time affects our feeling or our experience of happiness be it well i can already hear from terry talking about the experienced happiness is long lived um what do you what do you, do you guys have any thoughts on that connection well so it's it's curious zach one of the other sort of points i had should we select the james text was the notion of mindset right and in the sense of can we cultivate uh an experience in, in a way that is perceived by us and others as joyous, uh, fortunate. I, I tend to, to swap out the word happy for contentment, uh, partially because, you know, I, I feel like we overuse the word happy or almost dull it to a point that it seems to almost be a placeholder for a mix of feelings. Uh, so, so yeah, I guess the, the idea of, um, sort of perspective on a situation can't, you know, can't, can you, can you wield that? Can you change an experience to make it feel more fortunate? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, I think you can, I believe that. It's funny that you brought up time, Zach, if, if you've ever read all of Fern Hill time, he refers to time as a character. And the ending of the poem is, oh, I was young and easy and the mercy of his means, his being time. Time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea, you know. And, and so the passage of time means that contentment or fortune or happiness is fragile, perhaps. But on the other hand, perhaps what that means is the knowledge that it's fragile, that it's temporal, it's governed by time in some way. Um, means that that you treasure it. Yeah, you know it's 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 interesting that that sense of of the passage, passing of time, and moments of experience, and how we tend to connect uh, memory with emotion and and our perception of of what transpired versus uh, someone else's. Like back to that notion, if if I was happy watching the World Cup match. Uh, you know, late into the night or early in the morning was the person uh, that was next to me happy watching it. And and does that matter? 
the beginning here, he says, happiness comes of the capacity to feel deeply. And then he moves through um, the rest of that sentence. But is it, is the, do some people have a capacity and some don't? Do some curate a capacity for happiness um, and some don't? And, and maybe in that moment, somebody has the capacity to experience the same exact experience completely differently. What does he mean by happiness comes of the capacity to feel de deeply? Do you think he means that that's something that, um, that we all, obviously, yes, we all have it, but how much of that is conditioned by what we choose to do and how we choose to approach each moment? Or is he not saying that at all? I really like your your use of the word conditioning because it made me immediately jump to that sort of notion of nature versus nurture and why, you know, if you look at an international happy index, rarely is it the most uh, monetarily rich country or region that is claiming to be happiest. So we really haven't dug too deeply into sort of the, the things uh, or the people or the places that make us happiest, but that's where I'm going to lead us as we sort of move into an, an action activity. But I, I want to sort of save a moment for final thoughts. Uh, you know, as always, what, what started as let's keep this to roughly 30 minutes, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Terry, final thoughts on, on sort of this notion of what James is saying, that the ability to... Uh, to have a capacity to, to feel happy? Um, I do think, though, you can cultivate a capacity. I liked Zach's term, curate a capacity for happiness. And, and part of it is learning, you know, is the, is the Eastern trick of not overthinking something. And even knowing that uh, our most fortunate successes are mingled with sadness and our anxieties perplex the reality of our satisfaction. So that maybe that's the step that he's even making there is like, you can feel deeply and you can take risks that have reward and you can, you know, these aspects that create happiness, knowing that there's going to be the mingle of the shadow and the darkness that is always also prevalent and i guess my one of my final thoughts would be to even to connect it to the other two readings in a sense is the appreciation that whitman and thomas were giving to the experience that they were having in that moment in that place to to see the sky in that with wonder to see the flower to see the farm to feel it and experience it, maybe that's a maybe that's a, a little bit of a a key to happiness is to see those things in a, in in a new light or for what they really are, which is wonderful and and maybe that's um, even what if you were to ask James more about explaining this, I wonder if he would speak in like a, in a realist way like they did. Zach, um, to that end, I want to offer an action activity. I want you to, to consider uh, a list of um, 
people or beings, places and things uh, that offer lasting moments of of contentment, joy, fortune, happiness. Uh, so just start to list um, makes those things, ha- you know, so if it's a person, putting that person down and then maybe next to it, just a quick reason why they bring you uh, joy. And uh, once you sort of have that initial list, uh, to sort of begin to adjust it to to look at which of those items are most easily attained with with the the lowest cost, if that makes sense. So when I say cost, I don't mean monetary cost. I mean your time, your energy, your passion. What are the things that you place as priorities in your life? And so then from there, the sort of follow up is how to to pick just one to come up with sort of a plan to focus more energy, whatever it may be that that provokes a level of joy within you. Well, I like the, I like this idea because it places, it, it, it creates almost a, a communion of happiness between the things or the people or the experiences that we have and ourselves, rather than saying it's in a vacuum or you have to sort of exert your will and be happy, you know, or something like that. This says that maybe noticing the things around you are one step in curating gratefulness. And maybe in that gratefulness, there will be, uh, you could, maybe you can't force happiness, but you can continue to work on your capacity to notice it or to experience it uh, as in, in the word that James used there is capacity. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, Zach, I mean, you, you put very succinctly what I was hoping might come from an activity like that, uh, you know, almost a mind map of, of the things that, you know, come into communion. So if it's a place, uh, is it a place where you enjoy it as much with somebody or, uh, by yourself, or is it a certain time of the day? Is it um, a mindset or is it a season? So I think you could almost take any one of those items on the list and really sort of start to stretch it out to see uh, when does it make you uh, most happy and then share that so that others know ways to support your happiness. So maybe a a self-efficacy to those around us. I love the exercise because it suggests and again, I'm just echoing what I think Zach already said, which is it, it's attentiveness. Uh, one of our great heroes, Jeremy Jack McCall, used to say that the quality of one's life is directly related to the quality of one's ability to pay attention. One other thought I had in terms of the, you know the paideia practitioners is that are listening is it, the, there's almost a a sense in which a paideia seminar is that calling to that joy of learning, right? With other people, with other students around a great text and with great ideas. And sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't, you know, some seminars fall flat and and Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of joy and happiness experienced, but in others, it's a, the time flies and it's a, a moment that is, you know, feels transcendent for people um, and students. And we all have examples of students telling us that. So um, I think there's probably so many more things we could say about how this connects to education, but maybe we'll leave that for a bite-sized episode, Jeremy. 
Zach, you read my mind that if, if for any of our listeners that are tuning into those bonus bites, uh, that extension that really is specific to those Paideia practitioners, um, I think that that there there's certainly a spot to dig into in how seminar is is really a um, metaphor for life and and the opportunity to experience both the the positive and the negative of sharing ideas or or much of what James said in in his his quote. Well, gentlemen, uh, it's been an honor again to spend some time with you thinking and talking, and, and I always walk away from these discussions thinking more deeply about these topics. Absolutely. It's a worthy conversation, I think. So thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Terry. Yes, it is. Thank you, gentlemen. Make sure to check out our website, www.paideia.org, to access the discussion text we used in the Paideia podcast seminar plan if you're interested in having a similar discussion. As always, thanks for listening to Think, Discuss, Act. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Stay tuned for our next episode where we discuss the idea of memory and imagination. Mm-hmm.